You're listening to El Clásico, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta a España from Barcelona to Madrid. Today we're at La Rabelagua. You are indeed listening to El Clásico. My name is Daniel Freiber. I'm the host of this episode and I am at La Rabelagua, the climb that Remco Evenepoel went to check out the day after winning the Clásica de San Sebastián, nearly a month ahead of the Vuelta a España, and which he went to check out this afternoon, what seemed like a month ahead of the rest of the Vuelta a España, if that isn't too much of a spoiler. Um, joining me to tell us whether Remco indeed went on to complete his Phoenix-like resurrection or crash back down to earth like a hungover penguin in a punctured wingsuit it is the ace commentator and voice of cycling rob hatch buenas tardes how are you yes i am splendid rob as you can probably see um i am perched on top of the summit here just adjacent to the finish line and um, where someone well someone was victorious about an hour ago but what a view it is um extraordinarily beautiful drive today from the start in south town the beyond and um, we didn't take the race route we avoided the larao and um, the other climbs on the route but we came up the the saint martin uh, col de pierre saint martin ah which, of course, saw a famous exhibition by Chris Froome in the 2015 Tour de France and famous, infamous comments thereafter by, or actually during the stage, by Laurent Jalabert to the effect that, well, Froome was like an extraterrestrial. They were very controversial comments at the time. Um, I couldn't help thinking of those today. But what a day it was, Rob. Um, beautiful setting again. Uh, really stunning these last couple of stages and a, a stunning storyline. Um, uh, certainly a pretty unexpected one, I would I would say. But Rob, I guess you've been keeping a close eye on the Vuelta. I know you've been working. You've been yesterday commentating on the first of the doubleheader in Canada. Is that I right? guess I'm warming up for Montreal as well tomorrow. Montreal, Montreal. Uh, I'm actually at home in the home studio. I'm in sunny Sawyer in Mallorca. Almost as sunny as where you are. And yeah, I've been really, really enjoying the coverage. There was a moment today during the stage that they went through the, the forest of Irati, which I didn't really know much about, but apparently it's the second biggest in Europe. I know you'll be big into these things, a man of nature as you are. Uh, but it looked absolutely splendid, Daniel. Miguel, Miguel Indurain used to forage for mushrooms in there, I Did believe. Did um, Yeah, I believe so. Um, Rob, well, you'll have seen, you'll certainly have followed yesterday's stage. And of course, we woke today, well, with the sort of images of yesterday still burned into our mind's eye. Remco Evenepoel dropping spectacularly out of the general classification in the Vuelta a España, losing 27 minutes. We we didn't hear from him immediately at the finish, as I described yesterday. He There were some tweets, that he, or one tweet that was put out by the team, a bit of a statement to the effect that he wasn't ill, but it was just a terrible day. Now, we wondered whether he would speak to us this morning in Sauvetown de Béarn. We thought that he probably would. That would be true to form, true to character for Remco. We've talked a lot about it in this Vuelta. How keen a communicator he is and and well, sure enough he faced the music this morning at the start this is what he said about what had happened to him yesterday and well the rather uncomfortable night that he had experienced in Lourdes of all places we've all had uncomfortable nights in Lourdes but I, I guess Remco's was more uncomfortable than most uh, yeah, all good. I think uh, yesterday was a very difficult evening. Uh, pretty big load of, uh, of tears and crying and, uh, you know, 
two Grand Tours this year where I actually sacrificed almost everything for uh, Giro going out with COVID here. Just a very bad day on uh, yeah the day where you need your super legs. So uh, pretty unlucky on that part of the of cycling this year. But I think uh, overall my season was already pretty good, pretty long. So I think yesterday was just a bit of combination of everything that it was just too much. We cannot compare. The shape I, uh, I'm, I'm in now than I was in the Giro, for example. So um, we always try to be in the best shape as possible. And I really had to kind of hurry myself to get in, uh, in top shape for this Vuelta. And just seems that it, uh, it didn't work and that we, yeah, we didn't achieve the, the, the shape that I should have uh, been able to have. So uh, yeah, up to the next. Yeah, it's pretty frustrating, especially knowing that next year is, uh, we're going for the Tour. Uh, feel like I, I couldn't really test myself for the full three weeks now. Um, yeah, the Giro was uh, Mother Nature, they decided, and yesterday was just super bad legs, super shit day, so uh, no explanations, just maybe that uh, everything is uh, was a bit much coming together and it all came together yesterday. Rob, just before we go to the tail of the etapa, um, that sort of set things up today or, or did it? Um, well, it certainly didn't answer too many questions. I think Remco himself and his team still have questions. But, you know, I, I said that he would face the music. We expected him to face the music. And, well, it, out he came, um, you know, sort of shoulders back. And uh, and uh, quite quite admirable, really, in the way that he dealt with that disappointment this morning in words at least it remained to be seen how he was going to react to it with his legs but yeah um, in words certainly very strong yeah whether you're a Remco fan on the bike or not I think it's very difficult not to be a Remco fan off the bike because of his communication he's whether he's leading the complaints that we saw on the first weekend to the farcical nature of everything that's happened with sort of maturity really beyond his years or coming out and you know fronting up after what was an absolute disaster for him yesterday it was a nightmare wasn't it in the Pyrenees but he came out and whether you agree with what he said or not whether you you know whatever opinion you have he was there he fronted up and I think that's to be admired the Remcopolips yesterday wasn't it um, were we to see the Remco resurrection today was he to rise like a phoenix we're about to find out Rob um, you are going to do the honours in today's Tale of the Etapa. El resumen de la etapa. The Tale of the Etapa. Rob, off you go. What happened today? Well, it was the morning after the night before, wasn't it? Was the REM comeback on? Almost 28 minutes down on the GC after his Pyrenean nightmare. And riding on roads where Miguel Endurain was once beaten by a Dane on his home turf in his final Tour de France. It was a Dane that had done the damage at the end the day before. And this time he was riding into La Rao, the first time in the Vuelta. It's been used on the Tour twice. A 15-kilometre climb that was really the focal point of this particular stage, coming halfway through. It. it was a fast start, a big group away, but pretty soon we had Evenepoel, yes, Remco Evenepoel up the road with Roman Baldé, 
the best part of a minute of a gap going into the bottom of the Larao climb. The rest of the break who were there, including Mattia Catania, had helped Evenepoel get up the road. Four minutes on the red jersey group as well. The rest of the break about a minute behind. They were throwing water over each other, though, on a hot day. They were trying to look after each other, working hard. Shades of copy and battle, Shades of copy and battle. Will they be talking about this in 60 years? We'll have to find out. I don't know. Well, I did did screenshot (laughs) it on GCN um, with a view to posting this picture alongside one of copy and battle. Well, they were working hard. They were extending their advantage. There was the respect that copy and battle enjoyed there. And UAE controlling the tempo of the main group of favourites behind. When we got onto the climb, the gap continued to go, but then Juan Ayuso accelerated at the front of the group with 53 kilometers left, just under six kilometers from the top of that ridiculously difficult Larao climb. Now back in Spain, in the region of Navarra. Ayuso would try again, but he wouldn't be able to get rid of anybody. He was frisky, he was trying. Yombo took it up for a bit. Bahrain did as well, but there was nothing doing in the main group. On the hot day, Balde continued to ask for more water, this time from spectators, from a Yombo Visma team car, but he wasn't getting any. It didn't stop the pair, though, climbing one minute and 39 seconds quicker than the GC favourites up La Rao, almost 50 minutes for the GC favourites effort. I think it was 46 and a bit for those at the front of the race. It was a Baraki time trial still. They were up there working together, the two of them. Remco was on his way to the King of the Mountains jersey, whatever would happen. And in the foot of the final climb, almost five minutes of a gap. Yes, five minutes on the closest remaining chases in the early break. Mainly Michael Storey was trying to fight for that King of the Mountains prize, but wasn't really getting anywhere. They were eight minutes up on the favourites. 5.5 kilometers in front, the motorbike reporter Juan Carlos Garcia of Televisión Española was telling us at the foot of the climb. The hardest part of the climb is out the way, which is the start. Final climb about eight kilometers long, Daniel. And Remco Evenepoel suddenly couldn't believe his luck because he was riding at the front and he was riding Balde off his wheel. Not because he accelerated, but Balde was starting to cramp up. And that was it. Balde on an empty tank, Remco riding away, crossing the line as the winner, showing fight and character. The Rem comeback, Phoenix from the flames, whatever you want to call it. No movement behind in the top of the general classification. Garlic bread. Exactly. <laughs> It'll catch on. Evenepoel, the new king of the mountains, as well as the stage winner, holding a handsome 24-point lead over Michael Storer. But in terms of the big comeback, well, there's still almost 20 minutes to get back in the GC, Daniel. Rob, uh, you have commentated on many bike races over the last 10 years Too many, some would say. I was... Well, yeah. Um, I was racking my brains to think of another similar comeback. Um, I feel like I've seen them in the past and when a rider has suffered a terrible frangal or hunger knock one day or something of that nature and then come back to win the following day however i couldn't come up with any examples um uh, there, there have been some fairly sort of indecorous um, examples of riders well you know when we th- think about spectacular collapses out of general classification contention. I did think about Ivan Basso in the 2005 Giro d'Italia where everything went completely wrong for him. I, d- I forgot to look up today how many minutes he lost, but it was in the order of, I don't know if it was 25 minutes, but um, it was a, a complete disaster. And then he came back, I, I checked today, and it was about four days later when he started winning mountain stages again. Um, other factors at play there, um, I would suggest, if you know what I mean. Um, but Rob, can you think of any? Not in recent history, not 
as big of a name. You're talking about the world time trial champion, the man who's been the world champion. He's the defending world champion. That was big news yesterday, and it was huge news again today. I think anyone who knows even Paul's character would know that it was going to go either one or two of two ways, wasn't it? It was going to be off your pop at home and we wouldn't see him again, or it was going to be this big fight and pride and character and fronting up as we saw. And maybe the fact that he did come out, you mentioned this right at the start of the podcast tonight, the fact that he did come out and front up probably should, in hindsight now, should have told us something that maybe was something was going to happen today and he wasn't just going to sit there. And But not recent parallels, Daniel, I cannot think. I know that... You know, the internet will be awash with the L word and all that sort of stuff and whatever. L? Well, do, do it doing Alandis and all that sort of stuff. But, but oh, you know, you've been okay. there already. Right. And, <laughs> I mean, we've got to leave that where it is, you know, that, that sort of thing. <laughs> it's not our job to speculate about things like that. Well, if, if we're going to have that conversation, we'll have it properly and we'll have it in a, you know, in a, in a detailed and sort of concerted manner in one of the on one of the coming days that applies to uh, Jumbo Visma as well some of the stuff that's been discussed talked about on social media over the last 24 hours and um, we should we'll try to avoid sort of two minute fag yes. packet conjecture about that Rob I said yesterday that often momentum usually momentum in grand tours can be talked about in terms of well turning an oil tanker and that Remco has ridden this Vuelta España as though aboard a jet ski um, in contrast to that sort of usual, the usual way of things in Grand Tours. And this was in a similar vein, wasn't it? It's been a wild old ride over the last two weeks. And one feels as though Remco's career is going to be a wild old ride. Um, as you said, Rob, the general classification fight behind him in the other race today was, well, it was a more muted affair than yesterday. We didn't see any major changes. Um, I don't think any of the sort of contenders for the top five well they didn't lose any time today did they Rob they all came in together um, including no, top 10 was unchanged actually Daniel yeah and there was some sort of significant performances I was at another not as spectacular comeback but a comeback nonetheless was Joao Almeida came in with the with the sort of GC leaders today I thought that was quite significant also significant was Kian Utebrooks um, after an outstanding ride yesterday the young Belgian riding for Bora Hansgrohe um, we've been calling him the unpronounceable Emric Mass got in a bit of hot water on social media last night because in one interview or an interview with several Spanish reporters <laughs> after yesterday's stage, um, he just gave up altogether trying to pronounce Uzo Brooks's name and he called him Blah Blah Blah. Um, I don't know if that's going to catch on as an alternative nickname. Anyway, um, he finished with the GC favourites, but he had a tough day and we're going to hear about that in just a second. But first, we're going to hear from the winner of the stage, Remco Evenepoel, the man of the day. We're then going to hear from Grisha Neerman the Jumbo Visma director sportif about what they had planned today and whether he was happy with the way the team executed that plan and finally we're going to hear from Kian Uterbrook so we're not going to call blah 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 yeah I mean like I said this morning was a, a super hard evening yesterday um, a lot of doubting a lot of um, not knowing what to do and uh, then this morning when we had the plan in the bus they said look Remco uh, you have to feel the legs see how you feel and uh, if you're in the breakaway make sure you're smart and try to go for it and I think the legs I had today was completely different than I had yesterday so uh, yeah uh, and already like I said before I had a lot of uh, messages with my wife a lot of uh, and some some uh, minutes of phone call and uh, 
she I mean I, I told her I, I didn't want to continue and she just told me look you have to continue you have to make the best of it and if you if you do it do it for me and I think those words were enough for me to to take a lot of morale a lot of energy in the legs and uh, I showed it already today like I said I was super motivated and I just wanted to prove to myself to the people to my teammates to my team to my family what I'm really capable of because yesterday was I was just useless and worthless so uh, I just wanted to be up there and to take a win today and in a, way, in, in a very spectacular way as well is uh, yeah, just giving me a super good feeling and I'm, I'm really proud of this one. Well, Grisha, what was the plan for today and did you execute it in the way that you wanted? Yeah, we wanted to, to approach it defensively today, which we did. Um, other teams apparently had some other ideas, but uh, yeah, for us it was, was good like how it was. Uh, we had some, some bad luck with uh, quite some bike changes today, so that's why we lost uh, Jan and, uh, and also Dylan before we wanted. But uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think we, we survived the day really well and we can be happy. UAE tried to put the pressure on on the Larao. Um, what did you, what, it sounds as though that surprised you a little bit. What do you think they were, they were trying to achieve there? Yeah, surprised me a little bit from because yeah, it was not possible to uh, to, to catch the break anymore. I guess at least with uh, with Evenepoel having four four and a half minutes, uh, you don't catch him back easily. Also, they didn't have a satellite right in front. It was still a far way to the finish, and we also knew that our guys are good and and they won't get dropped. So uh, yeah, it was no problem for us. But. Uh, yeah, you have to ask them what, what their idea was, I guess. And Richard, this morning we spoke to Primoz. It seems like the three guys, none of them know exactly how this is going to play out. Um, don't expect you to tell me if you do have a plan, but um, do you have a clear idea of how you guys want it to play out between the three of them? No, but I think uh, yesterday we, we saw we showed that we maybe have the three best guys in, in the race and, and we also won two, three in, in, in the GC. And of course, it's, it would be a big dream to... Uh, to keep it like that for the rest of this Vuelta won't be easy. There are a lot of hard stages coming, but uh, yeah, we are now in a position. Yeah, we could have never imagined, never dreamt of, and, and uh, we will see how it unfolds. Tiana, I think you're you, smiling, but you're in a lot of pain, aren't you? You're in a lot of pain on the bike today. Yeah, well, it was uh, really suffering, let's say, from uh, the saddle soreness. So it's really something what we need to keep under control, like in the first descent of the day uh, was also like a descent with not a perfect road let's say and and then for sure it hurts even more because you are doing like this the whole time on the bike so yeah what was pretty painful uh, then the last descent was better because the road was also better and and uh, like the was was less pain let's say in in, in that area uh, but yeah like the legs were really really great we're really feeling smooth and uh, also on the last climb still uh, now it didn't make sense, let's say, to attack here because, uh, yeah, it's too flat, let's say, uh, and Bahrain was really pulling. Uh, but I think, yeah, we were all uh, not really on the limit, and uh, yeah, Bahrain controlled it, and uh, yeah, I think it was it was a good day. Um, we just need to keep uh, that settled soreness under control. <laughs> <laughs> and, and did the race feel a little bit more under control today with Yumbo having taken control of this welter? Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, it was pretty controlled. Uh, on the, the second last climb, like uh, I used to try it several times, it uh, was in my opinion also good because like I also joined there a bit because we, we need to try to eliminate uh, as much as possible uh, riders from Jumbo. Um, 
to make the race harder, let's say, uh, that it's more men against men. Um, but yeah, then in the end, the thing is that second last climb is also so far from the finish uh, that anyway in the descent they would come back. So uh, yeah, I think uh, in this stage we, we did what we, we could and, uh, and we are there. <laughs> Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Well, Rob, in order, that was Remco Evenepoel, Christian Niemann, uh, and Kian Uterbrooks. Um, yesterday, I mentioned in the podcast that one of the, I won't say who it was, but one of the Bora Hansgrohe staff sort of said to me that Uterbrooks, you know, he, he, he's suffering, no doubt, with the saddle sore, but the, probably a lot of riders suffering with similar problems. I saw that Tom Pidcock pulled out of the Tour of Britain yep. today with the saddle sore. Um, but it does sound, I mean, based on those comments from Kian Uterbrooks, it sounded pretty bad again today um, in another interview with some of our French or French speaking colleagues from Belgium he did sort of hint that there was a point even today when he was considering whether um, he would be able to continue in this welter but he did well, very well and he's riding extremely well in general isn't he Rob yeah and this is something actually given uh, my esteemed colleague Sean Kelly I've talked about this quite a bit both uh, Formally and informally, because Sean famously lost a Vuelta España very close to then, a couple of days from Madrid, in the leader's jersey because of a saddle sore. And, you know, it's just the sort of thing that anyone who's ridden a bike and felt it a little bit will know. But you imagine what you have to do at this level. And, I mean, I feel for it at the Brooks because it's the sort of thing, Daniel, that doesn't get better. It doesn't get better until you have time off the bike, and he's not going to really have that apart from the rest day. And one day is probably not enough if it's as bad as he sounds. And and again, kudos for him to being so open about it there in the interview. He sounded, you know, he, he sounded like he was taking it pretty well considering all that he's worked all year. This is a guy who's 20 years of age. He's prepared since last winter for this welter debut. He's looking good. He's looking great. I mean. On the climbs, he's looked like the most aggressive of the the riders in that main bunch in the last couple of days, barring the Yombo Vismas. Um, I, I fear for him getting to Madrid if it's as bad as it sounds, just because of talking to Sean and, and knowing how bad it can be, and the fact that it the main thing is it just doesn't get better. It, it's how much he can put up with it, I guess now. Rob, we will move our attention now onto another young Belgian. We'll revisit Jumbo Visma, what they did today and what lies ahead for them in this race. Of course, Sepkus still leads the Vuelta a España, but we're going to concentrate on Remco. We're going to concentrate on the stage. And Rob, at the finish, um, you know, obviously, Roman Bardet came over the line. He'd spent the whole day on Remco's wheel, pretty much. And he slumped to the floor beyond the finish line and he wasn't too disappointed um, for reasons he went on to explain he had a great day he said and he said that he knew that Remco was going to go for a Merck style win today and that he ended up doing 80% of the work that is Remco um, the comments were really illuminating actually he said being on Remco's wheel is terrible you feel like you're riding into a headwind um, because he's so aerodynamic um, he, he said that you know we at DSM Ferminet we've got really fast aero bikes but when you're on his wheel even on a descent you're having to pedal not to get dropped and it's the same on the flat He's, he says I'm doing as many watts on his wheel as I am in the wind and now I can understand how he does those 100 kilometer raids all the time um, it looked Rob as soon as those two 
managed to get away together. And I think the, probably the, the most difficult bit of today, the most difficult phase of the race for Remco today was getting away in that break. Um, it, it sort of, the course kind of favoured him because um, the break was always going to go on the flat and that eliminated quite a lot of climbers. Um, I spoke to Joe Dombrowski this morning and he was a rider who wanted to get in the break. But on, on a flat start, um, you need to be able to, to go fast on the flat and Remco <laughs> can certainly do that. He certainly can. He had good help as well. He had uh, Mattia Catania, who's been excellent since he joined Sudal Quickstep a few years ago now. Really improved. Remember, this is a guy who won the baby Giro when he first came onto the scene. Then sort of got lost in the wilderness for a little bit, but his time trialing's improved no end. He's good in the wind. He's good on the flat. He's good on the hills. And he helped Evenepoel get up the road today. And I think Evenepoel, with his own aerodynamic... I was say gifts really um, he's got, don't forget he's got fast skin we he's got about fast this skin the there you go. that's the gift I mean I, 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 I'm searching for a better word because I, I want to give him the kudos and the credit that he deserves because he's a young man that works ridiculously hard and that's why I said you know a few minutes back that you know any social media illusions and all the, the words that are being banded about and you know this might be different <laughs> because he's a guy who works ridiculously hard at what he does again whether you like him on the bike or not and I know that you know, like any riders, you've got fans, you've got people who don't want you to win. He, he keeps at it, he sticks at it, he works hard. Um, and there was only really going to be one result today. If Baldir couldn't drop him on the steeper slopes, there was only one way it was going to go, wasn't it? And the surprising thing was, as soon as they got over the hard bit of that final climb, that's when Baldir just disappeared and maybe that's an illustration of how much he had to work all day and the cramping started he was just out of gas and you know it was a, a day-long performance as you said from Remco Evenepoel not just dropping your rival on the final climb there. Rob, Remco, that is, also gave a press conference, of course. Um, he talked a little bit more about last night. He said he didn't sleep well. He also had a dope test early this morning that woke him up um, earlier than ordinarily he would have wanted to get up this morning. And, but he had a power nap on the bus on the way to the stage and he felt reinvigorated. Uh, but he said today was one of the hardest stages. He's won long climbs. He then sort of paid tribute to Klaus Ludovic, the pseudo quick step um, direct sportif, and also his wife for reviving him so to yeah. speak um last night but you know I, I found the comments earlier in the day really interesting when he talked about how he'd he felt that he'd rushed his preparation of course this is the first he's the first time he said this the first we've heard of it that, that he felt that his preparation was rushed um and it, it just slightly with comments we heard from Vasilis Anastopoulos, the Greek coach, early in the Vuelta, who said, who told me that you know, Remco's preparation for Grand Tours now, they've got a sort of copy and paste formula, and he'd done exactly the same before this Vuelta as he had done for the Giro. But Remco said that he felt that his condition for the Giro was quite different and quite superior to the condition he's brought into this Vuelta. I would say that, again, I'm going to caveat this very heavily with the fact that I haven't followed Remco Evenepoel to his training camps between the, the Giro and, and the Vuelta, but I would say that for it to be carbon copy, surely he didn't have enough time to do that. Um, you know, there was the recovery first up, there was race and see what happened in, in the Tour de Suisse, how he was, and he wasn't quite at his best level there. Then there was preparation specifically for the World Time Trial Championship. Mm. There's all the testing on the position. So you can't tell me 100% surely 
the all the sums add up to, to give the exact same number at the end of the, the Giro. I'm not saying it wasn't a good preparation, but it surely wasn't the same preparation, which was, you know, five, six months in the making. Yes. I mean, I think then, if you go back and look at comments, um, when he was forced to pull out of the Giro d'Italia, if, if not Remco, then certainly others were talking about a, a whole well, winter's worth of work and six months of work that had gone to waste. Um, interesting that Patrick Lefebvre, it was the day, I think it, his column in Het Newsblad comes out on a Friday, doesn't it? Or a Saturday? Um, maybe it was a Saturday. Maybe he did a column, an exceptional column today, um, because I believe he said that today would be the first day ever in a Grand Tour that Remco would ride with no pressure which um, was interesting and, and he rode he rode as though he was sort of liberated and um, that maybe a burden had been lifted in some respects but Rob obviously obviously there was a lot of talk today this morning during the day with Belgian colleagues here in the press room and you know amongst some of my other international colleagues about what this all means for Remco and whether a re-evaluation an overnight re-evaluation has taken place about his future as a Grand Tour rider, a Tour de France winner. He, in typical Remco fashion, got on the front foot and mentioned the Tour de France himself. He said, well, I think it's doubly frustrating what happened yesterday because I've got to start thinking about the Tour de France in 2024. Yes, and maybe part of that plays into what we're just talking about, the preparation. You know, he'll, he'll be starting that pretty soon, won't he? He'll have a holiday mm. after the end of the season. Well, will he go to Lombardy? Would he imagine so? I'd hope so. We'll see what happens. Um, I don't know. Mentally, it'll be different. But again, you know, there's no reason he can't turn it into a positive. He's been here. He's suffered. Like you said, he was he was upset and crying overnight. And you can understand that with all the work that's gone in there completely. Um, you know, he's somebody who takes his job extremely seriously. There's all that prep that we just mentioned. There's, he mentioned his wife and, you know, the number of altitude days he did before the Giro, the time away from his family. It's pretty easy for us to sit here talking rubbish about cycling as we do and other things. Uh, very fortunately so. Um, I To forget, it's very, very easy to forget all the sacrifices that are made. And, and every time you come, in, sort of come into a contact with a rider and, you know, you might see them at an airport a day, you wouldn't expect them to be travelling and they're going to spend three weeks at the top of a volcano and they're not going to see their family for so many days until, you know, within half a year. It's really easy to forget about that. So, yes, that mentally it'll be difficult. Things might Come on, change, Rob, we want hot I, I takes. don't think... We want hot takes here. Either write him <laughs> off or tell us that he's going to win the next 10 tours. Come on. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to do neither. <laughs> you well, should have known you what, before you booked me. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Well, some food for thought, Rob. Um, yeah, talking about reevaluating things. And, uh, you know, last year when Remco won the World Espana, we knew that Primoz Roglic was sort of edging back towards him um, when that crash happened in well just outside Seville in a place called Tomares um, last year and it did they left a bit of a question mark would Roglic have won the Vuelta if he managed to stay in the race if he hadn't crashed um, that said that said I think Remco's first Vuelta win got the sort of credit and the recognition that it deserved of course it was the first Belgian Grand Tour win for decades I can't remember how was it the first one since 78 Giro May since well have the been. Pink Panther yes yeah in Demunk yeah, 78 euro or 77 78 I think um, that said Rob um, what happened yesterday might force and I think has already forced some people to, to maybe look again at that welter that Remco won last year and just thinking about those mountain stages just thinking about where he took time on Roglic and why he was leading Roglic when he crashed last year um, he took time on 
Roglic on day six on the Pico Hano. And I'm just talking about mountain stages now. And he also took time on stage eight to the Coyao Fanquaya. Both both stages won by Jay Vine, if I'm not mistaken. But just looking at the altitude gain on those days, 3,600 meters, 3,400 meters. They were... Stages with difficult climbs at the end of the day, but they were very much sort of typical Vuelta yeah. stages rather than Tour de France style stages, which yesterday definitely was. They were. I remember the second one actually was that up and down day in Asturias, wasn't it? Coyal Fan The other stage, yeah. Pico Jano, it doesn't come to my mind immediately. Um, Terrible but- weather. Um, Roglic, yeah, Roglic losing a bit of time, not looking himself. Um, but yeah, not a, not a long final climb, but quite steep. But then again, this year, Remco Evenepoel, I know that today's one for the break when it's a different situation, but he's won two high mountain stages in, in the welter this year. He won in, in Andorra and he's won up here in, in La Rabelawa. And yes, okay, not the highest point in the Pyrenees. I know that, Daniel, I know you're an expert on everything that goes high um, everything. Um, <laughs> when everything full stop but everything that goes up on high uh, but it's part of the Pyrenees you know it's a big there was, there was a huge long climb in La Rao there two categoria especial climbs or category climbs as we call them probably more um, adopting the French term in the English language you know he's, he's he can do it again though, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that point though about maybe people revisiting last year's Vuelta because it's exactly what they were doing on the Televisión Española coverage that I was watching today Carlos de Andres and Perico Delgado the two commentators spent about half an hour talking about that and they were firmly in the camp that would, they were you know re, re-evaluating their, their own take on it there were you know this wasn't a hot take this was a take with a lot of hindsight and what happened yesterday and and they were you know they were bigging up Roglic again and saying well hang on a minute let's be honest Roglic would have equaled Rominger's record last year if even a pool mm. you know if he was still there so I mean that is a debate that will rumble on and obviously you know in the record books it's even a pool's welter isn't it there's a lot of what ifs we can use in any sport yeah and just looking as well at the stats for today's stage to Lara Belagua um, 3,949 metres of climbing so under that I mean you get Giro stages that are over 5,000 metres yes, of climbing yeah, yeah. Um, so although it seemed like a very difficult day and it was a very difficult day and Remco as I said earlier in his press conference he talked about how proud he was really having um, won on a day with such long climbs and such difficult climbs still not um, in the very very top bracket of Grand Tour mountain stages Um, yeah and and, you know the other question about wins like this I mean I think today you know he really imposed his personality on the race and Remco is someone who when he when he wins it feels like it's almost a victory of his personality as much as his legs and that's that makes him thrilling to watch Um, so absolutely well we won't take anything at all away from what he achieved today extraordinary comeback that said these stage wins by general classification riders and I've been a bit sniffy before I was a bit sniffy last year about Richard Carapaz's wins mountain stage wins in the Vuelta when a rider has has um, fallen out of general classification I remember having a conversation on the podcast last year after Carapaz had taken those wins was it two or three in the end um, about whether his value his market value at the end of the Vuelta was was lower than it had been or higher than it had been at the start of the race and um and, and i 
probably sort of aired on the side of it being of it having fallen of it having sunk yeah I would actually agree with you on that I would agree with you on that um, and I, I was thinking at a point today you know you know what if he goes on to win three stages there will always be people who say ah hang on a minute but you know he was there to do something different uh, you know there's nothing wrong with winning three stages it looks great when you look at it in 20 years doesn't it and oh my god this guy won a million welter stages and and if we're talking numbers by the way Remco Evenepoel is one moment of glory away from being able to raise his back turn to the crowd and 50 not out uh, he's 49 pro wins already in his career and I know it's a statistic that isn't particularly important but you know close to a milestone he's crossing them off a lot but again yeah we all know that he came to do something completely different here and I, I tend to agree with what you said certainly about Carapaz there uh, Did you get, ever get a 50 ever raise your back Rob? Uh, as um, I think I was once described on the Lancashire League Cricket website as a genuine number 11 the ultimate 11. rabbit yeah the ultimate <laughs> rabbit <laughs> um, Rob just a very quick one very quick one before we sort of wrap up the stage action well aside from Yuma Visma who we're going to discuss in a minute uh, UAE now I spoke to Machin the UAE uh, DS after the finish and occasionally when you speak to when you interview people it wasn't really an interview actually the microphone wasn't on um, sometimes you completely misunderstand things because I wanted a sort of explanation as to why UAE had done what they did on the La Rao and they pulled pretty hard and they tried to launch uh, Ayuso and I thought Machin said to me he, he there was a chance for him to hook up with Rui and I th- and I thought to myself well I had obviously overlooked the fact that Rui Oliveira must have been in the break uh, Rui Costa was in the break now Rui Costa doesn't ride for UAE anymore no, no. And, I, and I don't know where you, Rui Costa was at that point um, we know that Rui Costa formed some strange alliances though within cycling <laughs> don't we and um, what did you make of that move UAE uh, it's funny because there was an interview live actually um, on the coverage I was watching and, and he was telling the Spanish television audience I that, saw the same one yeah yeah that they were riding but the tempo wasn't too strong according to him because he said that Joao Almeida was still struggling a little bit and I thought that's a strange thing to, to admit so maybe he was playing games with everybody and of course he, you know he's he's sort of a bit of a mouth for hire isn't he during the, the Grand Tours he, he, he likes a quote or two Incidentally, Joao Almeida, Machin did tell me that Joao Almeida has just started a course of antibiotics and is just, well, trying to hang on at the moment, but he did that very well today. El ritmo de la vuelta. The rhythm of the vuelta. This is El Ritmo de la Vuelta, in which we make the worst Eurovision Song Contest entries of the last 50 years sound like multi-platinum selling bangers by revealing the acoustic atrocities chosen to serenade Vuelta España fans as official race anthems. The year today is 2002. Now, we covered this last year, um, but I'm going to reprise it for reasons that may be relevant to this year's race, which we'll discuss in just a minute. I can tell you the official anthem that year was Que el ritmo non pare, So the Rhythm Doesn't Stop by Mexican songstress Patricia Manterola. In 
Incidentally, she also recorded an alternative version of the song Que el fútbol non pare, so the football doesn't stop for the 2002 World Cup. Manterola first saw to fame in a group named Garibaldi, which, as we all know, has also been the name of the Giro d'Italia roadbook since the 1960s. The Vuelta that year started in Valencia with Onfer winning a 25km time trial and their leader, Jose Babelocchi, taking the gold jersey. Oscar Sevilla of the Kelme team took that off him on the climb to La Pandera, thanks notably to the help of Vuelta debutant Alejandro Valverde. A 27-year-old Basque rider named Aitor González was also riding his first Vuelta for the team in green and white and soon causing quite a stir, first by winning stage 10 time trial in Córdoba on the day of Juan Ayuso's birth and then by attacking Sevilla on the state of the Angliru. So egregious was the betrayal that Kelme felt compelled to call a press conference with Sevilla and González sitting side by side and González, in his own words, publicly asking for Sevilla's forgiveness. Rather more conciliatory than Sevilla's earlier comments on how González's attack had helped US postal rider Roberto Heras take the gold leader's jersey. Sevilla said González might as well have been wearing a US postal jersey. González's father, meanwhile, was disgusted with the reaction to his son's move and said he was being treated like a burglar. That sadly proved somewhat prophetic as González went on to win the Vuelta, flopped disastrously after a subsequent move to Fasabortolo, and after a positive dope test and retirement, sink into a life of crime and infamy, checkered with arrest for assault, cocaine trafficking, property fraud, and in 2016, the attempted robbery of a mobile phone store. Which brings us to Jumbo Visma. Rob, internal feuds, power struggles, civil wars in Vuelta a España teams. Are we going to get one with Jumbo Visma? That is one of the, well, that's the the sort of um, outline of a storyline that maybe a lot of us are rather guiltily clinging um yeah a lot of talk about that in the press room today i i think that that's a, a story or a hypothesis about a story that might gather momentum in the next few days right before we get into this and we also welcome um a, a second guest to tonight's podcast let's just hear what primoz roglic in typically cryptic and in this indecipherable form said to me this morning we, we open a champagne, uh, but uh, yeah, some, uh, some more uh, hard days to come, including uh, today. Uh, yeah, we'll see. Uh, for the moment, uh, it's nice. Uh, quite some celebrations in between, so uh, yeah, hope uh, some more to come. Uh, but uh, yeah, at the end, doesn't really matter. Super yeah. sweet worries, huh? and uh, we hope uh, we can... Uh, we can uh, bring it like this to the finish. Jonas wasn't here and Sepp wasn't here. Would you be confident now of winning this welter? Why? Well, it's just, uh, I mean, like I said, at uh, the end doesn't matter who wins it. Huh? Uh, and uh, yes, it's still uh, quite some some way to go. Uh, and uh, yeah, we, we need to, to stay healthy, stay in one piece and uh, yeah, do our race. And on the Primoz Roglic scale, are the legs good, super good? Average, where are your legs at the moment? Yeah, good, I'm happy. I mean, uh, I'm still here. It's a good sign. Uh, I smile and I just enjoy the race. Uh. Rob, Primoz Roglic this morning um, saying absolutely nothing of any real note, but in you know rather charming, typical Primoz Roglic fashion. You know what I mean, huh? Uh, 
Um, Rob, um, any thoughts on this? Uh, quick, again, hot takes um, in the market for um, Jumbo Visma, the, the feuds, the, the, the politics, internal tension? If there isn't a feud, or rather if there is a feud, they're doing pretty well at disguising it for now. We're still a week and a half, oh sorry, a week and two days from Madrid, aren't we? A week and two days from Madrid. So maybe they are disguising it rather well. You know, Roglic was in fine form, wasn't he? As soon as Kuss crossed the line today, smacking his mate on the back, smiling away, laughing. Then you go a bit more withdrawn. And I wonder if that's where maybe the, the plot line might take a turn. We are enjoying, huh? That's another one of Rog's favourites in this weather. We are enjoying, huh? Oh, huh. Sweet worries. Um, sweet worries for us, Rob, because we've got, um, well, we're in the company of greatness in the presence of greatness. Um, no special jingle for you tonight, Fran Reyes. No Fran Reyes Um even though the man who voiced huh. your jingle is with us. Fran, it's good to have you back after a few days um, at large. Fran, let's get straight into the, well, into the teeth of the matter. Um, Jumbo Visma, what do you think is going to happen over the next few days? I think that they are going to dominate the race well, we and that, that. Yeah, and that they are going to go into Madrid and take all three places in the podium, really. Who, in which order and how are these? Are we, is there going to be a flashpoint? This is what I'm interested in, chaps. I think, almost by definition, that there has to be some kind of flashpoint over the next few days. You know, particularly, I look at those three stages after the rest day and you... I mean, I, I do think they'll probably, but this people will, will not like this at all. They'll start to divvy up the stages and it will look as though they are just deciding who's going to win on any given day and you, even on Angelino well there are three flavors of uphill finish immediately after the rest day there's a Angelino which is you know as hard a climb as you'll find in professional cycling there's a a sh very short explosive very steep finish and there's a slightly longer explosive finish and between those three, they sort of suit the characteristics of their three leaders perfectly. So it could be three more stage wins in a row. But, you know, we talked yesterday with Brian Nygaard about the politics, how the, the visuals of this as well. I mean, I was at the finish today talking to an, uh, another couple of director sportifs and, you know, there is a mood of, of sort of resignation. I'm not going to say there's any kind of... Um, kind of grievances being aired about this but one direct sportif who I talked to said well it's just you know it's impossible to compete with them and also he pointed out that their second team car Jumbo Visma second team car is arriving some days before other teams first team car um, because even you know the domestics who are getting dropped they're not they're not losing a whole lot of time and that's probably when they're being told by their DS's to sit up but they're so close to the front of the race um, but I, I'm, I'm very curious to see how this plays out. There are all sorts of things we can conjure with here that, you know, that have been mentioned in the last few hours. Bonuses, um, who, whether Sepkus has got a bonus in his contract, um, who gets on well with who. We're going to hear something in a minute, um, a bit of insight from a rider who's not riding for Jumbo Visma, who heard something, which might give us some pointers. But come on, Fran, let's, steer, let's stir the pot a bit here. So domination is not only about winning it all. Domination is about setting the tone. And I think that Jumbo Bisma today was setting a tone on which they control the race, yet let the break go and go fight for the scraps, the remaining scraps that right now are stage wins. I think that they know that it is quite unpopular to win absolutely everything, and even if they would be capable of doing so, 
I don't think that we will see many offensive moves from Jumbo Moisma other than maybe trying to place one of the domestics on a breakaway to give maybe Dylan Van Barle the chance of getting a victory here and there. Maybe tomorrow is a great day for Van Barle to win. But uh, other than that, I think that they will just keep the race together and wait for others to attack but, or to pull. But, Fran, we heard the... Are you familiar with the series Succession? Uh, I heard, know we, about okay, it. Okay, we heard the theme tune earlier. Um, and I last night, for some reason, I couldn't remember the name of Roman Roy. So the three siblings, Shiv, Roman and Kendall I'm not going to say um, we're not going to maybe we'll do that another day who's Kendall who's Roman who's Shiv I think we decided last night that I'm not to be off that night Sepkus <laughs> <laughs> was Roman and that was a that was a, a purely um, a, a matter of physical resemblance um, but Fran you've you've skirted you've skillfully diplomatically skirted around the you know the juicy issue of who is going to win who is going to be the last man standing here today we saw a slight side of weakness, sign of weakness from Sepkus because in one of the attacks of uh, by Juan Ayuso, he struggled a bit to follow. You know, mm. there were Roglic and Bingegaard immediately on his wheel, and then Sep dropped a couple of positions back. It wouldn't be strange because he has a story, and that is something that was pointed out by Remco Van Poole on his uh, rest day press conference he has a story of maybe struggling in one day of in one mountain stage of the second of the third week maybe that can that happens again but now he's not working for others he's benefiting from others work and that should help him go through this final week of the Vuelta and you know Jumbo Visma they want to make history and there and by winning all three Grand Tours in one season they are making history already and if they manage to do it with three different riders, that's some completely different level that is unseen. If I were the Jumbo Bismarck management, I would definitely go with Sepp Kuss. I mean, we're all thinking about this, aren't we? We're all getting excited about this, you know, but there's a lot of water to flow under the bridge or a lot of mountains to be ridden up and over before we get to Madrid, isn't there? Heck of a lot to go. So I can understand why we're all sort of putting these formulas in our head now and, oh, this is going to happen. They're going to divide it up. And But what if there's a bit of an off day and people do start tacking on mountains like Angliru? One of those top three has to chase down the moves and cover. Yeah. The others... One might be swinging that day and it could be goodbye. And you know what can happen on the Angliru? You're talking, you know, Remco Evenepoel sort of levels of loss of time from yesterday. You know, if you, you're, you're swinging on the Angliru, you're almost falling off your bike. You're going that slow, aren't you? Um, there's a lot that can happen yet. And, and in terms of, of the politics as well, yeah, there's so much to happen. We, I think we can only speculate and probably enjoy speculating on that. And I think we'll continue to do so. One point about Kuss, though, just to bat the ball back to you there, Farhan, after, after what you were saying. Um, Sepp Kuss is doing something completely new. Yes, he might have an off day every so often. He also has days off. There's off days and days off. He's come from a, a year where he's had an exceptional year helping others win. But being at the top level, having to finish in the top group every single day for 21 days in his third Grand Tour of the year is not something that Sepkus has ever done before. Yes, he's got the power of the jersey. He knows it's a once-in-a-lifetime, possibly, um, opportunity to, to do what he's doing. He rode the time trial of his life, didn't he, to stay up there the other day in the red jersey. Um, 
a few notes of caution. I don't want to be the boring one, but I am being. I'm sorry. There's a lot of notes of caution to add to what we were just yeah, saying. There are. I think we'll dive into in the next few days. Um, one day we'll dive into the physiology of Sepkus doing three Grand Tours in a year. Um, I've talked in the past about this kind of this guy who's been hailed as this revolutionary coach in triathlon, who's behind the, the Norwegian stars and um, Blumenfeld and Eden. Um, his name's um, Olaf Alexander Boo, and he talks about. Um, the specificity and how applicable training is and he's one of his main sort of dogmas you could call it is that you can't do in a race what you haven't already done before now m- maybe Sepka's doing two like it's a crazy theory I know but maybe Sepka's doing two grand tours is perfect preparation to do another grand tour <laughs> um, maybe we'll talk about this in a, in a forthcoming episode this week but chaps um, before we lapse into any further scurrilous um, titillating speculation let's hear from someone else who might have a view on well trying to concile the interests of two potential winners maybe three potential winners in a grand tour he's the subject of today's Encuentro del Día, his name's Geraint Thomas, and I spoke to him this morning in Sauvetel de Béarn. El Encuentro del Día, the meeting of the day. No bandages today, that's a good sign. Oh, Yeah, I, I'm just worried I'm going to get a weird tan, so I need to take the bandage off now. But No, it's all good, I just, um, yeah, just a bit up and down. But yesterday I felt alright, I felt pretty good on the first climb, and then... It was obvious it wasn't going to be a break. Well, it wasn't a breakaway, and um, it was going to be a GC battle. So I was kind of like, well, take it easy as I can now, really. But to be honest, at the finish, I was still completely empty. Like even though riding the last two climbs steady, so um, yeah, tough day. Yes, you were pretty instrumental in what happened with Remco, at least at the start, in that you were forcing the pace on the Obisk when he um, was starting to suffer. I guess you didn't see any of that yesterday. No, but. Um, I did hear that he was distanced and then I was like, well, for sure Jumbo are going to ride now then. And uh, yeah, as I said, yeah, I was feeling all right at the start. I wanted to try and make the break and make something happen. Um, but in the back of my mind, I always kind of thought it'd be a GC day. But yeah, we'll see how today goes. Uh, Geraint, Jumbo now, obviously, they're in this incredible position. You've experienced a bit of this with Sky twice in the Tour, one and two, one and three. Um, well, how do you how do you see it, and is it is it complicated for their directors now? Uh, I guess with the the personalities, be interesting to see. Go on, elaborate. Well, I think they're all just uh, you know, I'm sure Vingegaard didn't come here just to be on the podium. You know, he would want to win. You know, having won the tour. I was speaking to him at the start and he was like, yeah, hopefully I'll have something to celebrate. We're talking about holidays and stuff. I was like, mate, you won the tour. you got something to celebrate, whatever happens. Oh, yeah, true, true. But for sure he wants to win. You know what Roglic is like. So, yeah, that whole dynamic, how they deal with that, really. But those three, it's unbelievable, really, what they're doing. So, yeah, fair play. Can you remember ever talking about that with Sky um, getting, well, monopolising... The, the, the podium in a Grand Tour was that ever even mentioned as an objective because you came relatively close a couple of times uh, it wasn't no but um, you know we did it in Catalonia once but um, yeah it normally from our point of view it was always like based around one or two guys um, we never really had three but yeah potentially it could have happened if one of them had gone in a break like Kuss had but yeah it, I think it's more 
dealing, as I said, just with the, the personalities now and making sure that everyone's sort of happy, which will be hard, obviously, but some position they're in, isn't it? I think it's a yeah, fair play to them. I'm going to ask you for a prediction now. Who's going to win the Vuelta? You can, you can say yourself, but <laughs> we, we presume it's one of the Yumbo Visma riders. Who do you think might win now? Uh, I think Sepp is in a great position. You know, I think having done what he's done for those two guys, but I know myself, you can ride for someone, you know, for years and they still want to win. So, but heart says Sepp, head might say someone else, maybe Vinegar. But, you know, I think the Angleroo will be an interesting day. You know, I think that's obviously a big day. I think the next two days, I don't think a lot will change. Um, so Sepp's in a good position, really. You know, I think, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they ride anyway, but... Uh. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. Um, chaps, nothing to report really on dinner last night because I wasn't very well, so I didn't really eat last night. Um, yeah, but I'm, I feel a bit better today. Anyway, um, back to the argument that just started. Are we in the Basque Country tomorrow or are we not? Well, we are going to be in something called Euskaleria, which is the historic Basque homeland, but in the modern dividing up of Spain that causes so much controversy and talk each and every day of our daily lives in Spain. Um, it officially isn't, no. Tomorrow, we start in Pamplona, the capital of the Kingdom of Navarra, or the autonomous region of Nafarroa, if you're speaking Basque. It's a bilingual region. Roughly the north of the region, which is where you are now, is Euskaldun, which is Basque-speaking. South of the region is Castilian-speaking. Um, we finish in Lecumberri, which, as you'll gather by the name, is a yeah, Basque-speaking town. Name. It's a, we're in the Basque country. We're in Euskaleri. And yeah, I mean, for a lot of people, you're in the Basque country, and I don't disagree with that, Daniel. That's a that's a debate to have with people who live in the area. Of course, we're I'll in the historic what, Basque country, but officially what, we're not. If I manage to locate a bottle of Euskola... Oh, there'll be the plenty finish, of that. ...at the I mean, finish tomorrow, then that settles it. We're in the Basque country. But, but Spain is such a, a country of contrast and a, a difficult animal to understand sometimes. You will see tomorrow Icoriñas, which are Basque flags. You will see the Echera flags, which are the flags of prisoners to come home and be put near their families. You will see political messages, but you'll also see Spanish flags. It's so difficult to get everybody to agree. But what we can agree on is that it's a Basque speaking region. It has a Basque culture. There's two and a half thousand meters of climbing to get there and potentially another good day for the breakaway. We'll see. It's up and down terrain. Opportunities are plenty, but of course, when there are opportunities, there have to be legs as well. Will they be there? And to touch on what we've just been talking about, Daniel, the name Lecumberri roughly translates from Euskera, or Basque, as nice new place. Just as it was for Max Uler, who was there as the winner the last time the race was in town in 2020. It's a typical sort of... Well, it looks like it could be a Mark Soler-type profile still tomorrow. Yeah, it was a different finish that day. It was a harder stage. It was a harder climb. Exactly. It yeah. was a harder final climb, the San Miguel de Arar climb. Yeah. Mm. 
chaps, we've almost run out of time. Um, but Fran, I, I very much hope this isn't going to be the case. It could be your last appearance on the podcast uh, in the Vuelta this year because you are leaving on the rest day. Fran, um, I must tell you this, that that moustache that you've been supporting since the start of the Vuelta has given rise to a new nickname. Someone in the press room referred to you as Cartel Reyes earlier. <laughs> Cartel Reyes earlier Hotel. today. What's, yeah, what's why, well, what's well, well, why do you think? Um, yeah, you look like you might have some... Um, some friends in high places in I don't know sense. I do yeah you know, <laughs> I thought he was auditioning actually I tell you what Spanish television public television Television Española makes some fantastic sort of period series and I thought he was auditioning either for a remake of Cuéntame Como Paso or maybe mm-hmm. El Ministerio del Tiempo which is what I've been watching recently I thought he might yeah. be auditioning for a piece in that you know the sort of 60s <laughs> 70s where he had to wear a moustache to make yeah. sure that everything was alright and all that Man, sort of dodgy I, stuff I know, but yeah. no and I also have a cassette tape tattoo now. <laughs> and every, yeah, everyone asks me, well, with your age, you never touch a cassette tape. And actually, I did. And I have uh, plenty of cassette tapes at, uh, my, at my place. So, yeah, I, kind of, I was kind of born 20 years too late, you know? I think oh, I would have enjoyed, yeah, I would have enjoyed living, living in the 70s. Well, Cartel Reyes, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the on the Vuelta this year um, indulge us one last time Fran I'd like you to turn to face the horizon <laughs> and we'll face these distant mountains rippling into Navarra and the Basque country towards Lecumberri and we'll just wistfully gaze for us and that's how we're going to end tonight's episode um, just how, tell us how, how long can I go on 30, 30 seconds max 30 seconds yeah, max I'm, I'm literally, that's too short for I'm this literally pressing that's stop too short for the story seconds. I wanted to tell man First time I came here was in the first training camp that uh, my team in the day, Kern Pharma, had after COVID. It was a reunion that we all loved. And this climb, we made it into the clouds, really, because the, it was so foggy that day. That day, Jaime Castrillo, a rider who had passed through, who, who turned pro with Movistar and went back with us that season, Ten seconds he left. was outstanding climbing that day and he seemed eager and happy to be a rider in two years time he was tired of it and he quit cycling altogether to later return as a master and right now he has found happiness in cycling but with a completely different role and it's great to see that in this great theater of life we still can be casted on a different role and find our place. Cartel Reyes. Cartel Reyes, never change. You'll be back, I'm sure, next year. Um, In the meantime, it's thank you. Um, Well, goodbye to you as well, Rob. Bona nit desde Mallorca. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.